Russian roulette, what game is Moscow playing in international affairs? Examining the recruitment challenge for the UK military, how's the MOD spending £30 million on an upgrade to armoured vehicles? We recognise that we've got important capabilities in our heavy armoured fleets. They do need upgrading, bringing into the digital age. And we join a Royal Navy ship on patrol in the Indian Ocean. As EU leaders in Brussels discuss tougher sanctions against Russia over Ukraine, the fighting in the east of the country continues to intensify. Western leaders have always accused Moscow of backing the rebels. At the same time, though, Russia is playing a key part in negotiations with the leaders of Syria and North Korea. So how does the West balance criticism of Russia alongside support for any attempts to find a solution in other conflicts? Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here, and we're also joined by Dr Andrew Foxall, Director of Russia Studies at the think tank, the Henry Jackson Society. Hello to both of you. Uh, Dr Foxall, first of all, President Putin's balance between peacemaker and aggressor seems more delicate than ever. It certainly does. Um, but I suppose what, what I would begin by saying is that that sort of that contradiction between aggressor and peacemaker is really a reflection of, of broader contradictions that we've seen in Russia's stance vis-a-vis the Ukra- vis-a-vis Ukraine and the Ukraine crisis really since it began. So, for example, in the earlier parts of the Ukraine crisis, the Kremlin would claim, for example, that there's no Ukrainian state, but it would also claim at the same time that the Ukrainian state is dis- discriminating against Russian speakers there. So, as I say, these contradictions are almost inherent uh, and central to much of what uh, President Putin's Russia um, says, but also does. And we see that playoff between aggressor and peacemaker, also with regards to Russia's actions in the South Caucasus. So, in the summer, for example, at the very moment that Russia was um, engaging in aggressive actions towards eastern Ukraine, not only by backing the backing the uh, pro-Russian rebels, but also sending uh, military personnel and, and arm, armaments and, and, and weaponry into eastern Ukraine. It was also playing a peacemaker in the South Caucasus. Mm. It was negotiating or overseeing negotiations between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the long-running Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. So yes, at the moment, we this, this contradiction comes to the fore, but mm. in many respects, it's been there certainly over the last year, but probably in reality over over the decade and a half since President Putin has been in the Kremlin. And do you think that these contradictions are a deliberate policy? I certainly think that perhaps if nothing else, then President Putin uh, is a pragmatist um, and, and will play the aggressor or play the peacemaker when it's really, or when he perceives it to be in, to be in Russia's interests. Um, so, for example... Um, when it when President Putin has perceived cooperating with the West to be in Russia's interest, he's done exactly that. Mm. So, for example, um, post 9/11, uh, President Putin aligned Russia with the West 
broadly because it served Russia's purposes that it, it, it ended Western criticism of the second war in Chechnya, which President Putin had launched in, in 1999. But he's also, President Putin's also opposed Western interest, or sorry, opposed the West when it has been in Russia's interest. Mm. One need only look, for example, at his opposition to, or Russia's opposition to intervention in Syria last year. A pretty confusing picture, perhaps, for Western leaders. How do they balance criticism of Russia over things like Ukraine with perhaps wanting to work alongside them to find uh, solutions in Syria? Well, that, I mean, that's the issue that comes to the fore with, with recent events. It, uh, it's undoubtedly true that, uh, I think at least it's undoubtedly true that, that the Ukraine crisis has convinced the West not only that Russia is, on, is, in a sense, an unreliable partner, but it's also led to questions about whether Russia is a partner at all. That being said, Russia clearly has an important role to play in international politics and in international affairs, certainly with regard to Syria and North Korea, but also broader Islamist extremism that's obviously currently manifest most vividly in, in the emergence of the Islamic State. Christopher Lee, what kind of role do you think Russia can play in resolving issues in, for example, Syria and the issue of North Korea? Well, Andrew, Andrew Fox was talking there about Russian pragmatism. Um, and we've got to realize all the time, um, almost whatever country it is, you do things that are very pragmatic because they look after the interests of your own country. But when you get to something like Syria, another element creeps in, and that is the idea of intervening in, say, Syria, as some people have said in, in so-called Western countries, is anathema to the, to the Russians, as it is to the Chinese. And so when it comes to the next part of how does Russia help, you start looking towards the Security Council, for example, and you say, can we uh, imagine that Russia would vote in our favour or abstain, but not vote against us on issues that we want to have a look at? And one of the areas would be if you start intervening, China and Russia would probably on the Security Council, if a Security Council resolution is needed, would probably veto it. Uh, Dr. Foxall, how long do you think Russia can continue playing this complicated game? I think Russia will continue playing this game for as long as it sees that, that it's in its own interest to do so. And if I may, I would just pick very quickly pick up on something that, that Christopher just said. It's undoubtedly true that President Putin objects and dislikes the idea of international intervention as uh, as 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 explained, against countries like Syria, because President Putin sees such intervention in a sense as Cold War-style Western imperialism, and ultimately I think he sees that as a threat to Russia. It also helps, where Syria is concerned, that Western t attention and Western focus is now firmly on the, on the emergence and the activities of the Islamic State, rather than removing President Assad and otherwise alleviating other crises that we see in Syria. And that lack of Western attention or the, or the shift of Western attention has given President Putin an opportunity to advance his own diplomatic agenda. All right, Dr Andrew Foxall from the Henry Jackson Society, thank you for your time today. Um, Christopher, um, quite a complicated situation because not only all of that going on, but uh, in tandem with this, developments with Russian excursions, for example, the south coast of England, we, we read this week that there's been an aircraft that's come close to, to, to our, our airspace. Yeah, this was a bear bomber. Uh, I mean, not an armed bear bomber. These are very old aircraft. There's the badge of the bear, the bison, uh, which are NATO designations, the Russians don't call them that. 
Um, was it routine? Uh, it is absolute routine, and it has been routine since certainly the 16s, the, the 1960s. Um, and what they do, they, they, they normally they would come over the North Cape, that's nor- uh, Norway. They used to go down to their to their bases in Cuba. Along the way, they would sort of pop in just to see how quick uh, you could get a quick reaction, uh, a flight up, well, squadron up, let's say, from, from RAF, uh, RAF, RAF Lucas. This time, they're flying up the channel, middle of the channel, terribly difficult place to fly because you might go into somebody else's airspace, mm. uh, air, air, air round the corner into the North Sea. This is tested, testing what's happening in the Lincolnshire air bases, mm. how quick you can get up from there. And, and how long has this been going on for? You say it's routine, except from where they came from this time. Well, I, I, I seem to remember in the, in the 70s flying from, from uh, RAF uh, Lucas in a, a F-4 Phantom up in, and, and getting within quite close to one of the bears. In mm. fact, I tell you what happened, we, we, we're flying up there and we come alongside the cockpit, or not alongside the cockpit, but we can see in the cockpit. You get that close? Well, you're not, you're not sort of, this is not red arrow stuff. I mean, these people are probably a thousand feet away. But suddenly the navigator, the Russian navigator, holds up a magazine <laughs> at the window for us and we look and it, it is the centrefold from Playboy. You're joking. I'm not joking. I don't joke about these sort of things. And, and there it was. And on that note, we'll conclude this conversation for the moment. You can tell me more another time. Now, if you're based in the UK, you will have probably seen or heard in the last few weeks one of the many adverts targeting recruits to the armed forces. The MOD's multi-million pounds campaign comes at a crucial time for recruitment of personnel as major restructuring takes place. But also key is retention of personnel. Well, this week, that issue was discussed at Rusi. One of those taking part was reti- retired Air Vice Marshal Mike Harwood. He spent 34 years with the RAF and he joins us now. Air Vice Marshal, good to speak to you today. What was the focus of this discussion? Hello there. Well, it starts off with making sure everyone understands what Rusi is, the Royal United Services Institute. And oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we, we talk about it all the time on this programme, so <laughs> I just assume people know. Thank They're you for slapping brilliant. my wrists on that. <laughs> Go on. Understand it because this is a voice actually for them and the reason I'm involved with them, ex-military, retired military mm. is to support the people who are out there actually doing the job and this is the oldest think tank in the world 180 odd years and it's talking here that it's a historic year because for all of us involved with the armed forces with a defense review coming up we need to make sure that government policymakers, all those people in london think through all the art of the possible yeah so this particular session was one of a series talking about people and the, the actual exam question I was given was, what does the future hold for military manpower? And what did you say? Oh, dear, what did I say? Um, well, first of all, you have to ask yourself, what do you think the future holds? And then a million answers come out immediately from that. And my point to the people listening, soldiers, sailors, airmen, civil servants, is that they can affect that future themselves by what they do and say and to make sure that their points come across because otherwise people do the wrong things and that's why Rusi 150 years ago started sending out its papers from London to people around empire to make sure that the little London bubble didn't steer off in the wrong direction. So, so what do you what do you make of the latest recruitment campaigns and do you think they're going to work? Um, well actually I quite like the latest recruitment campaigns because um, for the RAF one on its website and it goes through what they call Operation X 
and you can then look at this extraordinary number of jobs, more than 50 types of job you can do in the Royal Air Force. The Army and Navy have got just as many you know, great opportunities for young people to do something do, do, exciting. Do, do, do people really want to do it, though? I mean, we hear of uh, times being hard and, and tours are longer, aren't they? Look at the Royal Navy, for example. They've increased their tours from six months to nine months. Is there much to attract people still? Well, for me, uh, going around, the answer is yes, because there's so many different opportunities you can go for. And if you don't want nine months, uh, every now and then you do. When you start off, the odd thing like that is you get damn good at what you're doing. And then we go out there and show people what we're capable of. And then you might get involved in all sorts of stuff. So if it is a humanitarian operation, it's extremely vibrant, interesting work. And then you can come back and do something else. And now we've got reservists mm. being wanted hugely. Do you think a humanitarian operation attracts people in the same way that the, the possibility of going to a conflict would? Uh, horses for courses. There's plenty of uh, conflict environments, confrontation environments right now. Let me just highlight for you the, our submariners, for instance, who today are out there with a nuclear deterrent and big countries like Russia are watching and they'd like to know where it is. So we've got characters who are doing that now. They don't want conflict, do they, those submariners? We absolutely need them just to be bloody good at what they do. And everyone goes, OK, we don't want to go there. And then at every other level of warfare, there are things where before it, you need to prove that nobody would want to fight you, so they don't, so they mm -hmm. find another way. And as it was discussed a little bit earlier with characters like President Putin, he's watching all the time, he's probing all the time, and lots of individuals out there in the world test us and if we leave a gap they're going to go into it so we need to show that we care Christopher Lee. I was talking last night to somebody in the Treasury about this who looks at the military from the money point of view obviously but looks at it in a much deeper thing what we're talking about in the, in the, in the political and the longer term is this the United Kingdom is going into a, a phase of changing defence policy um, and this means that the United Kingdom as a government, but as a policy, uh, policy uh, issue, will have to say this is what we want the forces to do in the future. And if you can say what you want the forces to do, then you start to look at probably the biggest um, uh, question for the next decade. is not equipment so much, but it is manpower. So you build into your policy the sort of equipment you need to carry out government policy as near as you can do it. And then you say, do I have the manpower that can do that? What sort of manpower can I, can I have? Over what period? Is there a stretch or is there not a stretch that I can actually train people, retrain people uh, at the same time as getting into this relatively new idea of asymmetric warfare? You could actually get to a point, a fellow last night was saying, would you get the Royal Navy that's building uh, a, a nearly, nearly ready for sea, an aircraft carrier? You could actually get to a position where it didn't have, the Royal Navy didn't have, not just the sufficient manpower, but the trained manpower to operate for very long in not just the carrier, but, for example, the surface fleet and the subsurface fleet was needed to protect that and operate, uh, operate in force projection. Uh, that is the size of the problem. Air Vice Marshal Mike Harwood, uh, train manpower a problem? It's, it's a job. One of the things I said yesterday, uh, or the day before yesterday in this session at RUSI, was that we need to inspire young people to want to join our armed forces. We need to inspire them to do that. And there are various organisations, for instance, for the RAF, with the Air Cadet Organisation, where we do our best to show them 
that working in the armed forces is exactly the sort of thing you'd want to do and then go on to other things later in your life. But boy, is it worth doing now. If we fail to inspire, I think we can do that. But if we fail to do that, then we're in trouble. Air Vice Marshal Mike Harwood, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the world record holder and former Royal Naval pilot who witnessed the Nazi cruelty at a Second World War concentration camp. The Ministry of Defence is spending £30 million on upgrading Britain's massive armoured vehicles. The fleet, which was bought specifically for Afghanistan, is now expected to remain in service for a number of years. Defence Equipment Minister Philip Dunn told our reporter Will Inglis why the money needed spending and insisted the UK's armoured vehicles are up to scratch. We're not sure where our operations will be. Uh, I think what we're doing with this contract is, is, uh, is ensuring that the vehicles are, are adaptable and capable for use in different theatres in years to come. Twelve months ago, if I'd put to you that uh, Russian heavy armour would be causing trouble in Eastern Europe, you might have given me a funny look, but that is apparently the situation that we're in at the moment. Is Britain's heavy armour up to it? I mean, until recently we were cutting up Challenger 2s, weren't we? Well, I think in the heavy armoured space, obviously we've got the Warrior Sustainment Programme, which will be the next major uh, contract to be let in the uh, land mobility area. And, of course, we've also got Challenger 2 in the concept phase uh, for its upgrade uh, in years to come. So I think it's, it's, we, we recognise that we've got uh, uh, important capabilities in our heavy armoured fleets. They do need upgrading, bringing into the digital age. Uh, but we have a, you know, a sufficient number of platforms. Uh, we need to make sure that they're able to do do the tasks that we set them. Of course, strong defence requires a strong defence industry, and um, the armoured vehicle industry had a boom time in Afghanistan. Is uh, you know downsizing, I think, uh, now as a result. What can you do to support industry during this time when there are fewer orders around than there were a few years ago? Well, we placed a very significant order last September uh, for uh, with General Dynamics UK for the uh, Scout program. That's a three and a half billion pound program for the. Uh, manufacture and support of the vehicle in the early years. Uh, that sustains some 1,400 jobs, some 160 companies in the supply chain and as more supply chain contracts are let, that will have a bigger impact to sustain the uh, defence supply chain in this country. You mentioned um, Scout there. Um, will that still, will final assembly for that still take place in the UK? I know that's something that you've been looking at rather than have it uh, assembled in the factory where most of it's built in Spain. Well, 60% of the value of Scout is UK sourced anyway. Uh, what we've agreed to do in the initial contract is for the first 100 vehicles to be assembled in Spain and we are having discussions uh, with the company now about whether or not we exercise the option for vehicles 101 to 589 to be assembled back in the UK. Uh, Those discussions are continuing uh, and we'll let you know when we've got an outcome. Defence Equipment Minister Philip Dunn talking to Will Inglis there. Uh, Christopher, can the MOD spend money in the right way if it doesn't know what sort of fighting its troops will be doing? One of the problems is is the MOD uh, has to put money into a project which may take 15 or 20 years to come to anything. And then when it's doing it, it can't just pull out. And it's not because of a contractual thing, it's because you're committed yourself into certain vehicles. So, for example, there they were talking, um, uh, Philip, uh, Philip Dunn and uh, Will talking about heavy armoured vehicles. Um, <clears throat> tanks. Why do you need them? I mean, where is the heavy armour uh, uh, role for British defence policy, let's say, in 10 years? When we're talking about FRES, uh, this idea of having a, a complete vehicle, a complete armoured system that can control the battlefield, can talk to everybody, direct everybody on what to do and understand what they were doing. 
Prez uh, has been around the idea that of it. That stands for? Uh, uh, future... We can't tell you. Future something uh, environmental system. Mm. But basically, you take over the whole battle. Mm. Um, it's been around, the concept's been around now for 15, 20 years. Mm. And at one time, it was abandoned because nobody actually knew what it was. The army was told, the army said, we want to do this. So the ministers on the procurement said, OK, well, tell us what it does. Well, because things are happening and changing all the time, and there's new equipment, etc., and then you get a new desk officer comes in, and he's only there for two years, another one comes in two years later. They don't actually know, and they haven't been able to give the proper brief. And so that's why that what's going to start happening in the new defence review is look out for not just what the minister says, but alongside it will be a strategic defence review. Mm-hmm. And that strategic defence review, which we'll probably see later this year, will say, this is what we want the services for. That's when you go back to Philip Dunn and say, well, hang on, why have you still got the tanks? HMS Kent is continuing the fight against international terrorism as part of an operation in the Indian Ocean. The Type 23 frigate has joined the International Combined Task Force 150, which also features warships and aircraft from Australia, New Zealand and the USA. Well, earlier I spoke to Kent's captain, Commander Andrew Block. We've done, we've done quite a lot, actually. Um, uh, HMS Kent has done a, a series of patrols focused on interrupting the flow of drugs out of... Uh, Afghanistan through Pakistan, and also some counter-piracy operations, whilst also at another time supporting uh, the USS Carl Vinson as it conducts uh, strikes against ISIL in uh, northern Iraq and Syria. How do you train for this kind of operation? The Royal Navy uh, has been doing these operations for, uh, for 40 or 50 years, so the training has evolved, but basically it includes uh, a whole host of individual training uh, that uh, the, each person does each of my 214 uh, uh, members of my ship's company. And then we do months of collective training, uh, both in the UK, uh, in UK waters, uh, in the Mediterranean, and then actually when we're out here uh, east of Suez. You mentioned that the two areas that where you're helping that in the supporting in the fight against ISIL and also in the counter-piracy uh, operations. On a day-to-day basis, just tell me a little bit about how you work and the kind of threats you're identifying. Well, if we deal with the, the counter-piracy uh, mission first, actually piracy has reduced massively in the last uh, few years, and that's because of the focuses it's had, not just from the Royal Navy in the UK, but from a vast array of uh, nations. Uh, we're working almost alongside Chinese, Russian, uh, Southern Korean, uh, French, German uh, forces that are all operating out here. And in terms of your support in the fight against ISIL, what have you been doing? Well, uh, specifically, we've been supporting the U.S. Carl Vinson, which has been uh, responsible for the majority of the the air support uh, provided uh, in Syria and in uh, in northern Iraq. Uh, So just ensuring that she remains safe uh, in the northern Arabian Gulf uh, and is uh, that she's able to operate freely and to launch her aircraft when she chooses to and, and not, not constrained in any way. There's a there's very clear indication that uh, terrorism is supported by um, by narcotics coming out of uh, Afghanistan, and that, that is one of our roles, which we spent a lot of time ensuring that we interdict uh, vessels coming out of that area and prevent them releasing those drugs into the streets of Europe. All right. Plenty of work to do. Uh, let you get on, Commander Andrew Block. Thank you very much for your time. This is BFBS. Sit rep.
This week, world leaders gathered to mark 70 years since the liberation of Auschwitz on Holocaust Memorial Day. Former British serviceman Eric Winkle Brown witnessed the horrors of Nazi Germany at the liberation of another camp at Belsen. The 96-year-old is the Fleet Air Arm's most decorated pilot, and his command of German also meant he got to interrogate some of Hitler's most infamous followers. I spoke to him about his experience at Belsen and his thoughts on the rise of Nazi Germany. What had happened was there were 20,000 cases of typhus in the concentration camp. The Germans were terrified that if these people got free, they would spread a plague which could catch up with the whole of the German army. Mm. So they ringed in Benson with troops so that nobody could go, neither the inmates all the guards, they were all caught inside. And the Germans then had a white flag truce with the British to say, right, you can come, take over, we won't fight, we'll let you in, but you've got to take charge of the whole situation. That was agreed. So we went in under those auspices. Mm. Now, when we went in, it was fearsome, of course, to see, because the first thing that just strikes your eye, there were pits dug, quite deep pits, and the bodies were piled up. They would be higher than the ceiling, much higher than the ceiling. And um, beside that, there were people walking around whom I call zombies because they were half dead. They were just in the process of dying. Still able to walk, but maybe a few days only to live. I talked to them in German, of course, and uh, they would stand and listen to what I said, but never look me in the eye, just stared at the ground, wait till I finished, and then walk aside and walk off. You mentioned earlier that... that um well, of all these people that you've met, the, the, the Nazis, d- did you get any insight into human nature? I mean, you mentioned that the camp commandant of Belson t- talked about why he did what he did. Did you get an insight? I began to understand these were fundamentally evil people. Um, they hadn't been chosen for any other reason than they were willing to do these dreadful things, to look after people, push them around, kill them if necessary. And um, in any country, there is an evil element. And if you let that element get control, you, are, you have big trouble. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. Um, Hitler um, really conned the people into thinking that he was going to give them back the pride that they had lost by the Treaty of Versailles. And um, once he got them willing to follow him, he just led them down evil ways. That was veteran Eric Winkle Brown. Uh, Christopher, I mean, he was just talking specifically there about Belson, but an extraordinary life this man's had. Extraordinary life. I mean, it, it, is, the, it is the sort of life that you can't have now in the services. It is, it is the breadth of what you do. And that is the importance of this. It was interesting, the other night I was at something uh, with, a, with, with the British Legion, 
and it was attended. Three guys who were half colonels or something in their 80s in that generation came in. And there's a guy sitting next to me who was SAS today, mm. stood up and saluted them. Mm. And he said, that, that is what we're, that's what, that's what we're about, yeah. he said, isn't it? Let's look ahead to next week. Um, February the 5th in Brussels, NATO defence ministers will meet. Yeah, and this week, you see, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big have a go at the Russian thing uh, for about 10 days. Um, the foreign ministers are meeting today. There will be some of the EU, this is within the EU, some of the uh, um, heads of government are meeting, and then the defence ministers are meeting. And what they all have in common is to decide to do what next about sanctions over Ukraine against Russia. Mm. And these are important meetings because if they go ahead, then we've got a further confrontation port with, 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 with Russia and, Briefly, indeed, and with Putin in particular. A, a date in the diary, the reconstruction taking place in Belgium in June of the Battle of Waterloo and everyone's going to be a winner, apparently. Well, what's happening is it, it takes place over two, two days. They have the battle, you know, one, day one and then day two. And they thought, well, as it's a nice public thing, uh, we'll let Napoleon win on day one <laughs> and, and, and let, we'll let Wellington win on day two. And the point is day two comes after day one, so it doesn't matter what happens to Napoleon on, on, on day one, does it? Mm. But I tell you, I remember when, when it was 2000, and five, and Nelson's uh, uh, anniversary, and we, the British, invited the French foreign minister by train. Mm-hmm. Now, train went into Waterloo. Ah, how nice. How welcoming. Um, now, um, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the funeral of Sir Winston Churchill, a, a man who you met. What are your memories yeah, of him? Yeah, well, you know, it was my first big interview. Um, my grandfather, I was How a old were toddler. You? I was a toddler. I you interviewed was, someone as a toddler. No, hmm? it was, I was seven. One does, or this one does. <laughs> Precocious. I was, I, was, I, was, I was seven, I think, and my, my grandfather, uh, who knew him, said, uh, may I present uh, my grandson? His name is Christopher. And Churchill looked down, this big pink face looked down at me, and he said, yes. <laughs> and that's all he said. And you said what? Uh, thank you very much, sir. I've always been polite, you see. The first and last time you showed respect to someone, I suppose. First and last time I showed respect to anybody. Christopher, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye. Digital radio, FM and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air. Around the world. This is the Forces Station. The FBS. FBS.